Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. We pray with me, Lord, open my lips, open our hearts. Thank you for speaking and thank you for using people, means, to carry on your ministry. I pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done in all our lives, and that you'd even use these words and your word, Lord, in our lives today. Jesus, in your name, amen. So continuing in the parables, and this parable in particular is probably a parable I have spent the most time in. Years ago, I read... Henry Nouwen's Return of the Prodigal, when Tim Keller wrote a book on the, called Prodigal God, I read it. Some years ago, I led a college and career study, and I had us read those two books at the same time, uh, because uh, the Prodigal God kind of touches the mind, and the Return of the Prodigal by Nouwen kind of touches the heart, and, and it was just a, this good combination, and that had to be a, a number of years ago, and uh, uh, even... Christianity Today had a, an article devoted just to this one parable. And my wife found the uh, painter of the painting who did the cover for that, contacted her, and bought me a copy of it because I was so into this parable. So on our wall at home is this painting by a lady that is on the cover of that Christianity Today article. So I love this parable and have been blessed by it, and I hope that we will be blessed by it as we go through it. And I think the big picture of this parable is there's a comparing and contrasting two sons. It's not the prodigal son, it's the prodigal sons. And there's two ways of self-salvation. There's two ways of avoiding God. There's, there's a, a way of being kind of bad, kind of sowing your oats, you can call it self-discovery as a positive way, right? And then there's a way of like keeping the rules and being, you know, the, 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 the rule follower, but both are ways of avoiding God or attempting to save yourself, and the gospel is a whole nother way. And this is really one of the big points of the parable. Now, what I find interesting is it begins this way. Now, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So this is his audience. And when you keep these stories in mind, understand he's speaking to these two groups, tax collectors and sinners and this next group. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, I've always found this funny. It's this parable, but if you read Luke 15, you have three stories, not one. So he told them this parable, and then he breaks into three stories, and you're like, hmm. So, so even though it's three stories, somehow they're all interrelated to be one parable. You've got the story of the lost sheep, you've got the story of the lost coin, and then you've got the story of the lost sons. And Jesus continues, and he goes, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in open country? Now, I'm not a shepherd, and I could be wrong about this, but it sounds to me like you would not leave the ninety-nine alone, right? I mean, I, 
wolves, animals, ter- maybe, maybe somehow they stay together in open country. I don't really know, but it, I think there's something crazy about it. But he says you leave them and you go find the lost one. Seems like in my book, you go, well, can't get that one. I need to protect my 99. But in this situation, he goes, finds the lost one, and when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Now, if you don't get this point, he goes on. And I love this because he compares God to a woman, right? And can I say, this may only be true in my household, but when I lose things, I'll, I'll, I'll be like, ah, it'll turn up. Although I've got a pair of glasses that haven't turned up for years. But I, I, I just, it usually turns up. Like I'll say, hey, hon, I lost my wallet. Now Gretchen, when she hears something's been lost, she bird dogs that thing. Isn't that right, honey? She is... She finds anything of mine that I lose. I mean, it's amazing. And I'm just like, ah, it'll turn up. Probably in the car, maybe at church, somewhere, you know. It's okay. Um, But Gretchen finds it. And maybe this is kind of a thing, right? And God is like Gretchen. Right? God is like Gretchen, because that's what he's saying here. He says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found that, found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Still one parable. Now he goes on. And he said to them, there is a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And I've said this before, but maybe you've never heard it. When... Do you actually get your inheritance? Yeah, when, when your family member, when your mother or father dies, right? That's when you get your inheritance. So what is the son saying to the dad? Dad, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I would have your money. And then to have a father divide the property, that's like nuts. Uh, one commentator said, in a traditional, a traditional Middle Eastern father would strike his son on the face. He'd, he'd, he'd be like incensed and drive him out of the house. How dare you want me dead? Right? I'm your dad. And, uh, and notice, he doesn't want a relationship with his father. He wants his dad's money. He, he's, he's like, Dad, I, I don't care about you. I don't care about a relationship with you. All I care about is your stuff. And so the dad does the craziest thing. Understand, remember when I was preaching on the, the guy who built the barns? They, where was their wealth? It was in their land. It was in their animals. So this guy had to go, okay, my older son would get the lion's share of my property, but this amount of property belongs to my younger son. I'll sell it. Right? He didn't go get money out of the bank. The people of that day would think this guy is the stupidest guy around, right? 
You sell, you get your property. They even have this ceremony among the Jewish people where you take like this burned corn and this other maybe burned wheat. And when if your son squanders your property, you smash these jars that it's in and you say, you're dead to me. Yeah. And so this is a crazy thing. He sells his property and he gives it to him. You know, when I, I read this, I don't know about you, but I was the younger brother. And maybe there are some like me here who when you look back at your life, you, you read the Psalms and the one Psalm that says, remember not the sins of my youth. And you're like, yes, yes, Lord, remember not the sin. And you read this parable and you get to the younger brother and you're like, yep, that was me. That was me. And when I started thinking about application of this parable, Henry Nouwen really helped me a lot because he redefined home. He said, a home is where, a home is the center of my being where I can hear the voice of God saying, you are my beloved and on you my favor rests. And isn't that home now for us? Isn't there, when you get that, when you get this like, committed this this steadfast love of God you mean I'm accepted just where I am I have people sitting in my office many times and and I'll say you know what at this moment think about everything you hate about yourself and now think that God loves and accepts you right as you are I mean when you get that there's a peace there's a rest now one calls that home but look what he says He goes, but I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it can't be found. Why do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persist in looking for it elsewhere? Why do I keep leaving home where I'm called a child of God, the beloved of my father? He said, I'm constantly surprised at how I keep taking the gifts God has given me, my health, my intellect, my emotional gifts, and I use them to impress people receive affirmation and praise and compete for reward instead of developing them for the glory of God. He's saying there's a way of trying to fill this I am the beloved that is prodigal. There's a way in us where we, we compete for other things in this world that's prodigal and we leave home in a spiritual way. He says, yes, I often carry them off to a distant country and I put them in service of an exploiting world that doesn't know their true value. It's almost as if I want to prove to myself and the world that I don't need God's love, that I can make a life on my own, that I want to be fully independent and beneath it all is the great rebellion, the radical no to the Father's love, the unspoken curse, I wish you were dead parable goes on and he says not many days later the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless and wasteful living and I couldn't help but think that somehow this guy he had a good news right we we all believe in a gospel right and whatever we love whatever we think is going to really fulfill us our, our minds go to that, our hearts go to that, and our money go to that, right? 
I mean, our money flows to the things that we really love and our thoughts and our hearts. And, and this guy who was committed to, in a nice way, self-discovery, right, is devoting his money and his time to things that just deplete all his resources. And the Bible says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. Now, Jewish people, I mean, they could feed pigs, but let's face it, they didn't eat pork. And this was probably a place where Jewish people did not want to be. And the Bible says that he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. I remember when I was on a mission trip I uh, was served some food, and you know how smells ring a bell for you, right? You, you, maybe you go into a house and you're like, this smelled like grandma's house, right? Or this baked bread reminds me of this. When I was served a meal, it reminded me of the Alpo we used to ser serve our dog, right? I was like, wow, I remember this as a kid. This smells like Alpo. Um, <clears throat> and this guy is looking at these, pig, these pods, they feed the pigs, and he's longing to eat them. That's rock bottom, I think. I, I like what J.K. Rowling said, rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I built my life. And maybe you had rock bottoms. I've had numerous rock bottoms, times where I've given my gifts, my money, my time, my thoughts over to something and it just has left me at the bottom. And it's there where I'm reminded about the grace of God and the gospel of God and the voice says, come home, come home. And, and that's what happened here. He says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I like how he uses the word father here. And then he said, I will arise, I will go to my father and I will say, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's interesting how many times he says father here. If he truly was a servant, he wouldn't be calling him father, would he? He remembers the kindness of his father. He remembers his dad. You know, I don't think this is true repentance here. And I think for two reasons. One, he's negotiating. He's, he's going to pay his dad back. And second, one uh, commentator pointed out this, is, and I find this interesting. He said, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Biblically literate listeners, all of us are going, I guess this isn't me when he points this out, would hear an echo of the empty words of Pharaoh's mouth in order to stop the plagues. Pharaoh hurriedly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. So this commentator would say, no, the guy's still scheming to somehow just get bread in his mouth and in his stomach. So the scripture goes on and says, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion on him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. You know, at your lowest moment, God is looking at you with compassion. Right? I mean, 
his son spit in his dad's face. His son said, I wish you were dead. The dad gave and his son wasted. I mean, had he like built an empire someplace else, maybe his dad would have been proud of him. But he wasted everything. And yet the dad looks, sees him from afar. There was a famine. Maybe he was like, I, I think my son might be dead. And, and, and he runs to him. And this running is kind of interesting because in traditional Middle Eastern cultures, the men didn't run. You know, they wore kind of those robes around their legs. And in order to run, you had to lift it up. You know, I, I own the pastor robes and I wear them sometimes. And it's not easy to run. I've never ran in them, frankly. Maybe we should have like a, a, a clergy race in robes just for the heck of it. Um, uh, but, you know, ladies, you know, if you've got a long dress, if it's really tight, you can't run at all. You're like this, right? But, but it would just trip you up. It would get between your legs. So to run, you had to expose your legs. And that's humiliating. You know, mothers ran. Servants ran. Children ran. The father's acting like a mother here. He, he, he's running. And, and I like what this one commentator said, but this father out of his compassion, empties himself, assumes the form of a servant, and runs to reconcile to his estranged son. I mean, what a beautiful picture of this father who runs and he just hugs the son. So uh, there's a guy, a scholar, a theologian named Mirslav Fole, and he wrote this book, Exclusion and Embrace, a theological exploration of identity, otherness, and reconciliation. And, and, and he, as a young man uh, in communist Yugoslavia, he, was, uh, he visually saw the ethnic friction there. And it turned into this bloody breakup of the country. You can see, you know, the, the Croatia and Serbia. And, and he said, uh, an important factor in the war was the drive for pure identity, hence the term ethnic cleansing. They drove people of the different ethnicity out or they murdered them. He said persons belonging to other ethnic groups would be swept away like dirt so that, no one, uh, so that one could have a clean ethnic house. And he goes on, since we live in a world that's inhabited by many groups, the desire for pure identities leads inescapably to violence and bloodshed. And he began searching for a resolution between this tension that exists between, in him between the natural instinct to fight for your rights and the teaching of his Pentecostal parents that the enemy is there to be loved. He said, after the war broke out in the former Yugoslavia, I started thinking about this whole issue of relationships between cultures and between individuals who are part of the cultures. How should I relate to my friends and my fellow Christians who are Serbs and who find themselves on the other side of the barricades? Right about that time, I was asked to write a paper addressing the upheavals in Eastern Europe from a theological perspective. And I asked myself, how am I going to relate to those who have injured me and my country? And as a theologian, liberation theology, which I don't have to go into much details, but you'll get a taste of it here. He said, I tried to apply liberation theology to the situation, which says we need first 
to fight for justice and liberation, and then we can be reconciled. Sounds good, doesn't it? He goes, um, but it didn't work. Why? Both parties saw themselves as oppressed. Both saw themselves as engaged in a struggle for liberation. Can I pause there? Republicans and Democrats, right? In our world right now, who can be the biggest victim is the winner. And liberation theology is saying, we're, we're all the victim, we're all being victimized. And, and Miroslav Vol would say, that it, this isn't the way to find peace. He goes, my main categories of liberation theology, oppression, liberation, serve to justify the struggle rather than lead to peace. Isn't that interesting? He says, then it occurred to me that one of the best portrayals of what lies at the core of the Christian faith is this amazing story of the prodigal, which I read as an expression of what God did for us on the cross. Suddenly those open arms of the Father became for me a picture of who God is, how God has acted towards sinful humanity, and not only how God acted towards humanity, but how we ought to act towards those who have sinned against us. Is that not beautiful? You know, you and I, we can skim over the prodigal son, but this guy said, wait, this embrace of the Father is to be my embrace for my brother and sister who's also an enemy. And as I experience the embrace of the Father, I can then go and give that embrace to others. Like he personalized this embrace of the Father. And I had to think, what does this do for me? Like do, when you think about God right now in these moments, how do you see him? Is he running to embrace you? I mean, some people have had really bad, difficult, earthly fathers, and I'm sorry about that. But God is the perfect, loving Father, unlike a bad, earthly father. And his embrace is pure and holy, and he runs after his enemies, and he embraces us. Years ago, there was a song by a guy named Benny Hester, and, and he said, Almighty God, the great I am, the immovable rock, omnipotent, powerful, awesome Lord, victorious warrior, commanding king of kings, mighty conqueror. So he's like lifting up all these names for God. And he said, but the only time, the only time I ever saw God run, not away, but was towards me. When he ran to me and he took me in his arms, and held my head to his chest and said, my son's come home again. He, he lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes with forgiveness in his voice. He said, my son, do you know I still love you? It caught me by surprise when God ran. You see, what is this embrace? The power, I think, of this parable is God is always coming out to his sons and saying, come on in. And he runs out to the sun. And this, I believe, is where repentance happens in this prodigal's heart. Notice how his script changes. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Where's the quid pro quo? Where is the negotiation? Where is the I will pay you back? It's gone. Yeah, he might have been interrupted by the father, but I think he just let it go. How do you pay back this kind of love? This is where repentance happens. The only thing we need is need, and few of us have it. But the father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. So I follow on Facebook and Instagram Appalachian Trail hikers. Like when they're done with the trail, I'll unfollow them. But I like seeing their posts. I like seeing stuff. And, and in one of the posts, one of the fathers of an Appalachian Trail hiker says, I got a package from my son. And I opened it, and it was dirty, smelly clothes that he didn't need. He said, I've washed them a few times. I can't get rid of the smell. Any suggestions? Somebody's like, put vinegar in. One guy's like, burn them, you know. And, and, and I was thinking... He covered this boy who's probably almost naked but dirty and smelly with not a robe, but the best robe. He's sparing no expense and put a ring on his finger. And we think, oh, how nice a ring. But this ring was the ring of like the family signature. You know, in the olden days, you'd stamp a letter and you'd put a stamp in it. Well, this is the family signature. This means you have authority to buy and sell and enter into commitments for the family because you got the family ring that you can actually stamp legal documents with it. He's like, you are part of this family and you're barefoot and put shoes on his feet and then kill the fatted calf. Commentators would say they didn't eat a lot of meat in those days because meat was expensive. And veal was probably extra expensive. And they say, kill the fatted calf and let us eat and celebrate. And they began to celebrate. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? <clears throat> now this older son was in the field. You know, I don't know if I'll make this point later, but can I say this? When you think of the angels rejoicing over one sinner who repents, what comes to your mind? You know what I used to think? Tom, yay, Tom repented, you know. Bryce, yay, Bryce. And they were celebrating Tom and Bryce. I don't think so anymore. I think they're celebrating God. You got another one. You got another one, God. Go get another one. Lord, look how gracious and merciful and kind you are to love your enemies of Tom and Bryce and Doug and Betty. Go get another one, God. I think the rejoicing is over God, not over us. Not that they aren't happy for us, but do you see the emphasis is on God? He says, now the older brother was in the field, and when he came, he drew near to the house and heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. He said, your brother has come home and your father's killed the fatted calf. Like, we all get to eat. We all get meat. Because he's received him back safe and sound. Now you'd think, yes, my brother, my brother's alive. I, this is wonderful. I am so happy that my brother is alive and not dead. But he was angry and he refused to go in. It's impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to them. You know what I mean, isn't it? 
Like the only way to truly forgive is to get your eyes off of that person who offended you and start thinking about how you have offended God. And the more you get your eyes on God and how sinful you are and how gracious he is, the more you get in touch with that kind of forgiveness, do you then have power to forgive those who have sinned horribly against you? I mean, the gospel is the power of salvation and the gospel is the power to forgive. It's why the Bible will say, forgive as you've been forgiven, give as you've been given, love as you've been loved. Like, it's always get in touch with the gospel. It is the power of salvation and it is the power to forgive. But this guy, he's not in touch with anything except look at that jerk of my brother. Now, here's something interesting. So let's say your dad divided his estate while he's alive, right? So the older brother gets the lion's share, the younger brother gets less, but the younger brother just gave and reduced and got rid of all of his estate. Everything that the father has, who will get it when he dies? The older brother. So whose stuff is ultimately being sacrificed? Dad, this is my, that's my, that's mine. I mean, ultimately, I mean, come on, that's mine. And so this guy, he doesn't, he doesn't love his father, he loves his money. Everything the father has, if dad prospers, I prosper because it's all mine. And this younger brother, for the son to refuse to participate in such a banquet is an unspeakable public insult. Dad throws a party and you're there. A cultural equivalent might be the case of a son in the West who has a heated public shouting match with his father in the middle of a wedding banquet after a large family wedding. Maybe you've seen those kind of things on YouTube, right? Uh, it, it, this is the idea that everybody would know. That why, is, why isn't he here? Why isn't he partying with us? Why isn't he rejoicing over his brother? He's, he's mad. And look how he talks to his dad. No, look what the dad does. See, we talk about the prodigal son, and the father runs after the one son, but here he comes out. He leaves the party, and he comes out to his older son, and he, he implores him, come on in. And look what the son does. He doesn't call him dad. He doesn't call him father. Look. Look. Like he's mad. Uh, uh, these many years, I've served you. I've never disobeyed your commands. Yet you gave, you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when my, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours who has devoured your property, correct, with prostitutes, we don't know this right? He's only using his imagination, right? You kill the fatted calf for him. You know, I have to wonder, so I said how I can look back at my life and say, remember not the sins of my youth. But then after being religious for a while, I think it's easy for me to grow into the older brother. Do you ever find that dutiful, disdaining other people? more judging of other people, more critical of other people. Do you, do you know what I... Grumbling. 
complaining after all I do, you know? Like, like the relationship this guy has with his father is you owe me. You owe me. Sometimes we, we're like, Lord, if I do these things, then I'll get this outcome. God, you owe me, right? If I raise my kids this way, then I'll get this outcome. God, you owe me. Like we, we don't want God. We just want the outcome. We just want the blessing. And this older brother, he doesn't want a relationship with his father. He doesn't want to go in and be with his dad. He just is mad that he, his dad isn't treating him how he thinks he deserves. He doesn't want his father. He wants his father's stuff. And he says to him, son, you're always with me. Look at this. All that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. This brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He's like, come on, rejoice with me. Now and writes, the lostness of the resentful saint is hard, is so hard to reach precisely because it's so closely wedded to the desire to be good and virtuous. I know from my own life how diligently I've tried to be good and acceptable and likable and a worthy example for others. There was always a conscious effort to avoid the pitfalls of sin and a constant fear of giving in to temptation. But with all that, there came a seriousness, a moralistic intensity, even a touch of fanaticism that made it increasingly difficult to feel at home in my father's house. So both guys are avoiding God. Soren Kierkegaard used a very modern term to define sin. He defined it as building your identity on anything other than God. He said, sin is building your identity on anything other than God. So you got one brother whose identity is all about being good. And you got one brother whose identity was all about self-discovery and giving him self over. But both were avoiding God. Both were in charge of their own lives. And the gospel comes to us when we say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be your son. And the Lord runs out to us, or the Lord comes out to us. Unlike a fairy tale, this parable provides no happy ending. Instead, it leaves us face to face with one of life's hardest spiritual choices, to trust or not to trust in God's all-forgiving love. I am the only one who can make that choice for myself. But the Freedom does not come through human effort, but through divine intervention. Now imagine the scene. Sinners, religious guys. And what is Jesus saying? Hey, I want all of you. Because there's a party that goes on before the Father. If you guys would just come in. And he leaves it an open-ended story because the Pharisees and the religious people aren't coming in. And he's inviting them, come Nowen writes this, he said, is there a way out? I don't think there is, at least not on my side. It often seems that the more I try to detangle myself from darkness, the darker it becomes. I need light, but that light has to conquer my darkness. 
and that I cannot bring about myself. I cannot forgive myself. I cannot make myself feel loved. By myself, I cannot leave the land of my anger. I cannot bring myself home, nor can I create communion on my own. I can desire it. I can hope for it. I can wait for it. Yes, I can pray for it. But my true freedom cannot fabric, I cannot fabricate for myself. I must be, it must be given to me. I'm lost. I must be found and brought home by the shepherd who goes out to me. The story of the prodigal son is the story of a God who goes searching for me, who doesn't rest until he has found me. He urges, he pleads, he begs to stop clinging to the powers of death and let myself be embraced by the arms that will carry me to the place where I can find the life I most desire. Will you pray with me? Lead us on, Lord. Lead us on this week. May we, by your grace, experience your embrace in the midst of whatever we're going through. May we be vulnerable to you. May we be still and know that you are God. Hold us, Lord, and help us to taste of your goodness, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.